Welcome back to the Art and Science of Sound Healing. I'm your host, Thomas Orr Anderson, recording from my cozy mountain cabin studio here in Sewanee, Tennessee, surrounded by beautiful forests that have essentially lost their leaves at this point and countless waterfalls in every direction. Today we have a really exciting guest, as usual, and his name is Joseph Carringer. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. And uh, I just met Joseph recently, and we had a little bit of conversation, which was enough to indicate that this is going to be a really fun show. So what I'll do is read a little bit of his bio and from his website, and which is digtherapy.com, which I'll probably tell you about later. And then we'll kick off an interesting and exciting conversation. Joseph Carringer is a professional didgeridoo musician and sound therapist with 20 years of didgeridoo playing experience. His work as a didgeridoo musician and sound therapist has taken him everywhere from the jungles of Peru, Peru, the beaches of Jamaica, and to the big sky country of Montana. In his sound therapy practices, he uses concert class didgeridoos combining traditional Chinese medicine, organ and meridian theory with Ayurvedic chakra philosophies to create a unique and powerful therapeutic sound healing experience. And I'm going to jump to the end of it because I'll let him tell us more about himself as we go. In 2004, Joseph was invited to be a founding board member of the New England Holistic Health Association, which was created to be an educational 501c3 with a focus on holistic health education and issues. He sat on the board for 10 years and also served multiple terms as the organization's president. And he's currently a sitting board member on the Electronic Music Alliance. Uh, And a quotation from someone who's uh, experienced his work, the effect was immediate and dramatic. I could sense my brainwaves shifting to higher, more healing vibrations. I also felt all of my meridians or channels opening up and flowing more effectively. Hopefully, maybe we'll get a chance to talk about what exactly it means for someone to sense their brainwaves shifting to higher vibrations. But anyway, he is an expert in using the didgeridoo therapeutically and also has a lot of other interesting parts of his background, which I'm excited to talk about. Welcome to the show, Joseph. Thank you for having me on your show, Thomas. Super excited. Me too. So as I uh, shrunk your bio down, purposefully (laughs) so, I guess just to kick us off, if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself than was included in what I read. Um, So with with regards to uh, my did playing, I've been playing, um, I started playing in a uh, a blues and jazz bar. Uh, So I actually came at sound therapy work from a a more musical background. And actually I came up playing the didgeridoo from a completely musical background. Um, I grew up in a musical household 
and uh, was um, admittedly the least talented of uh, everybody I was surrounded <laughs> by. Um, my uh, my father is a by ear um, guitarist, bass player, and pianist, which is you know he's he's the kind of guy that literally can listen to a George Winston song and start playing it by ear. Uh, my mother and my sister are both um, Suzuki book method, classical pianist, like train, you know, trained. Um, so I grew up around hearing sound and music uh, and, you know, everything also being like uh, what I describe as premium sounds. Like we had, we were fortunate enough that, you know, I had a, my house had a grand piano in it. My, the organ my father played was a really, a really nice organ and the, when they started me, I failed miserably as a guitar player. And uh, when they moved me onto a saxophone, I was, um, I had a, a really nice saxophone. And the reason why was my dad actually uh, worked for a company that worked for Yamaha. So we had access to all of these really nice Yamaha products. And um, that kind of gave me the foundation of uh, finding the ear that I didn't know I had because you grow up hearing all of these things being played and in tune. So like that, and brought me the aha moments in sound therapy that when I kind of clicked and went, oh, this is why we know when things are out of tune. This is why when we hear things and it doesn't feel right, you know, we it, it, the, these, uh, these very, these descriptions that you hear people make, because I grew up in this constantly in tune environment, musically and sound wise, and started to work in these areas where there was, disharmony it, it began to click for me cool yeah as we discovered in our first conversation we have a lot of interesting commonalities in our backgrounds i also grew yeah. up in a musical household and came from a musical background and we both also uh have our and correct me if i'm wrong our our healing knowledge or philosophy or approach very largely rooted in qigong or chinese medicine or some version thereof yeah absolutely could you tell us a little bit about your i don't know your, your basic philosophy of sound healing what what if you were to describe your approach or the way you look at sound therapy or sound healing or whatever you prefer to call it. And I think you have a, a preference in that regard that maybe you could describe. Yeah. Yeah, tell us a little bit about so that. So I, I, I do make a distinction from what I call between sound therapy and sound healing. And I don't, I, I, I don't say that one's better than the other because it's really, it's not about that. It's just a, a slightly different distinction in the way that you're, you're working with the sounds. Um, sound therapy to me is something that uh, has... Uh, the, um, the, the rooting inside of working with in tune frequencies and applying those and by in tune, uh, somewhere inside of like the four, four, a equals four forty or around that area. If you ascribe to something that's like, you know, a equals four thirty two or whatever, uh, but working with an in tune frequency inside of, um, the, I guess it's like the last three to 800 years that the application of using um, emotions and uh, sound inside of the Ayurvedic chakra system that uh, acknowledges, you know, first chakra as key of C, second chakra D, and just going up the scale until you get to seventh chakra being uh, B at the crown, uh, taking that 
anytime you're working with in-tune frequencies and you've got, and you could be a practitioner that's working with sulfagio tones and you're doing a very specific thing with, with in-tune frequencies, that to me is sound therapy. Sound healing is when people just take and they say, all sound is good. All sound is wonderful. And we just bring everything together and we just create this, this universal interaction because every sound in the universe is pure and true. And and that's the that is the what I experience as the more classical and and again to not call it un, to call it untrained is an a uh, it's untrained musically not in terms of the application of the sound the sound healing work uh, it's not a musical application it's a it, it's a sound application so to me that's the the, the the distinctions between the two where one uses sound plus intention equals results with the application of frequencies inside of what you could almost call like music theory or scientific method. The other one is just working with that sound plus intention equals result and all sound is divine. So those are the distinctions between the two. Um, my, uh, my rooting with traditional Chinese medicine came uh, from uh, first experiencing uh, Reiki 26, uh, yeah, it's, wow, 26 years ago um, at a coffee house in Nashua, New Hampshire, and uh, being exposed to that idea and that understanding of, of allowing movement to flow through. And then in 2003, when I started to uh, do the research for, my, for uh, doing didgeridoo-based sound therapy, um, had some more interactions energetically and really kind of anchored on keeping the sound therapy, what I was doing and not even calling it sound therapy at that point, I was just going to be doing these harmonic therapy sessions because that was the word that I found. And it was all based on physiological things. When I did my first demo in February of 2004 and met the acupuncture community in, uh, Portsmouth, in the Portsmouth, New Hampshire seacoast area, uh, really amazing people, traditional five element acupuncturist, my, uh, close who man who became my close friend and mentor, uh, a gentleman named Ed Hubble, who did um, Chinese formulas, uh, qigong, uh, shamanic work. He really adopted me in as like a, a son and a brother, and said, "I'm going to teach you all of this stuff." And that was where I started to really uh, learn and understand qigong and the fact that it's you can't separate them so i wanted a very i, I wanted a very anchored physiological thing when i started doing this work thinking that we we're just gonna because i saw i read a, a quote from a physician who said that didgeridoo uh didgeridoo sound sessions you'll see relief of muscle nodding muscle tension uh possible relief of anxiety stress migraine it was this thing all these very physiological things so i was like okay cool i'm going to do sound massage when I met the acupuncturist, so like, okay, yeah, you can do the sound massage thing, but there's no distinction from this energetic side. And we're going to show you this energetic side. And that was when I started to really understand the principles of that. You can apply sound um, in, a same, in a similar way that you apply acupuncture needles. You can move chi, you can move prana in that same way that you're applying, you're applying the needles or you're doing qigong. It's an extension of that. So I described the digit sound wave and the way that it, you play the instrument as like being a Reiki or qigong power washer and how it clears out the energetic system. That's so fascinating to me because of the parallel with my experience. I, I was studying Qigong, and well, first I threw just my, really through drumming, I started in a lot and developing a meditation practice. I started to sense what I didn't know what it was, but this 
feeling between my hands and around my hands, especially when I was drumming for long mm-hmm. periods of time, that I then found out is what people called chi. And then that led me to uh, study Reiki, which I got really heavily involved with and very, very active Reiki practitioner and having extraordinary magical results. And then I got a didgeridoo and started playing it a lot and I hadn't connected them. And at some point, I don't remember exactly when, but I remember it was very dramatic. I played the didgeridoo on someone and then put myself in the same kind of state or the same sort of process I went through when I was doing a Reiki session and Mm -hmm. projected it through the didgeridoo and just so similar to what you described, I discovered it was like, like you said, a power washer. Yeah. It was like what I was experiencing with Reiki, but, you know, turned up much stronger and it had the, the especially... Uh, delightful side note the fact that someone didn't have to be sensitive at all in order to perceive it if you play the didgeridoo on someone (laughs) they can feel it pretty much no matter who they are although i've had some very exceptional people where i could point a big didgeridoo at their back play it really strongly and they still claim they couldn't feel it which that's only happened a few times, but it, you know that's a, an exception. But it's interesting that we both came kind of through that same route, and my sound therapy practice really began through the didgeridoo. Um, it expanded and changed quite a bit over the years, but it definitely started where I, I ended up getting to where you know often you know every day probably sometimes multiple times a day, I was doing sessions where I was mostly playing didgeridoo on people and having just ridiculously extraordinary results where it Mm -hmm. blew my mind every time and blew their mind. You know, how is this relieving all my pain? How is this relaxing me better than any massage ever relaxed me? How am I suddenly remembering things that I forgot from my childhood? Why am I seeing angels and people have all these extraordinary experiences and that's what yeah that really is what brought me into this field and it's fascinating to hear your similar story so where i've i've stayed rooted in uh in dig work for for the last uh 15 years the um or 13 13 15 years um the um the fascinating thing for me was figuring out and then seeing it kind of like you described seeing these sessions and seeing what was happening so in a very short period of time you know i started starting out with that physiological aspect and then seeing the energetic aspect the description that i started to use or i still use to explain to people the way that the dig affects a person there's so there's three basic ways first is that very physiological infrasound wave so the dig is producing the, so the difference between the dig and all of these other sounds uh, sound therapy instruments and that's their sound healing instruments. And that's kind of the other thing I, I, I like to explain to people is that there are so a, a cello can be healing. A guitar can be healing. Somebody's voice can be healing. Like there, anything that produces a tone and you can produce it in a way that in encourages or, uh, or, or supports uh, meditation and supports relaxation. That's going to be a, a, uh, 
a, a therapeutic tone. So you have all these different instruments, tuning forks, singing bowls, uh, drums, all of these different things. The difference between the didge and all of these other instruments is the sound wave itself that the didge produces, because you're going from zero point something hertz that the didge produces, all the way up to conservatively, you'll see a thousand hertz is what is, is the typical one. I know from as much time as I spend in the studio, depending on the didge, I'll hit between 1300 and 1800 hertz. And you have this big fat sound wave that you're, the drone is what you're hearing in that, in that particular key or in-tune frequency. But at the same time, you've got all of these other harmonics inside of it. And so I think that my theory has always been that that's one of that that is the number one reason as to why the dig is so effective on all of those different levels. So you have that very physical aspect of the infrasound wave, which is that no touch form of sound massage, which will relieve the muscle tension, muscle knotting, stimulate bone growth, do all of those different things energetically just like a tuning fork will clear out energetic stagnation or entrain is the way that I like to look at it is that you're not actually clearing a person's stagnation. If that stagnation in, inside of the subtle energy system that uh, whether it's a emotion, an emotional base or just something that's just gone out of, out of tune, out of phase inside of the subtle energy system, that sound wave is entraining it. That's only going to be as effective as that person's ability to be able to release whatever was causing that in the first place. But you can provide them temporary relief in the same way an acupuncture needle will do, in the same way cranial sacral will do, Reiki. It's all temporary unless the person actually engages that ability to release it themselves and move on from that, that lesson. Um, and then the third way that the, the dig affects a person is through the meditative. And so you go from that physical to that energetic and then to that meditative uh, aspect. And it's just a really effective sound wave at helping people get into meditative states. So if you have difficulty meditating, it tends to be a great set of training wheels. And if you do it regularly, it tends to be a big up button allowing you to go deeper into your meditation. And when you combine those three things together, that's where you really get the, the, the power behind its ability to help people find their healing states. Cause that's the other thing I don't, consider myself to be a healer and I don't call, I don't think of the didgeridoo as a miraculous healing instrument. It creates a sound, a tone that helps people get into, into meditative states where they can engage their mind body connection, where they can work with their third eye to visualize and quantum co-create and manifest the world around them. There's all the, you know, all these different aspects of the power of meditation, but we heal ourselves. We manifest the world around us together. So that's the, that's the power of, of the instrument is really just helping people get into those places. One thing that I find really fascinating, I've done a, I've done a whole lot of work with heart math and with the relationship between our breath and our heart. And one special thing about the dig, of course, anyone playing any instrument is necessarily breathing or else, you know, they're going to collapse. So they're breathing. Right. But when you're playing the didge, your breathing is not just happening in sync with the instrument, what it's playing, but it's also something that is being very consciously done by the player. And oh, yeah. And one interesting thing, I don't know if you've ever worked with heart math. Ha have you? No, I haven't. No, I'm not familiar with it. Well, HeartMath, well, it's a research organization that's done a lot of study about the heart and basically heart biofeedback studies. And essentially what happens is, and they have biofeedback software that trains you 
how to control your heart rate pattern. Basically, there is a measurement of your heart that most people don't know about, but it's actually pretty common, generally referred to as your HRV. And HRV stands for heart rate variability. So when you go to a doctor and they measure your heart rate, what they never tell you is that you don't have a heart rate. What you have is an average heart rate over some period of time. So when you uh, you know, measure your heart rate, you're measuring what was the average heart rate over the course of a minute or so. Correct. And your heart is actually constantly and uh, quite drastically speeding up and slowing down with every breath. And by, you know, as much as say 30 BPM per breath, it alternates. And the pattern, if you, if you graph the pattern of your heart rate, so your heart rate's, you know, going up, say it's 60 and then it's 80 and then it's 60 and then it's 89 or something, it creates a wave. And that wave form is called the graph of your HRV or your heart rate variability. Oh, wow. And okay. what they det- have found at the Heart Math Institute, and I definitely recommend investigating their massive amount of incredible research and uh, tools and uh, documents and all sorts of things to help understand and utilize this, but that when you breathe in a conscious, steady, smooth pattern, like a deep, slow in-breath and then out-breath where it gets steady, then what happens is your heart rate variability becomes synchronized with your breath such that it at some point sort of clicks into a state that they call coherence. And when you look at the graph of your heart rate variability when it's in coherence, it looks just like a sine wave. And what they found is that when your heart goes into that coherent state where its variability is tracing a beautiful, perfect sine wave, that at that state, you all sorts of different uh, measurable qualities of your state of mind and your body's systems is optimized. So you're, when your heart's in coherence, your uh, stress hormones are minimized, your uh, perceived clarity of mind is maximized, your all sorts of psychological benefits and physiological benefits are associated with the times when your heart's in coherence. And it's really easy to train yourself using their software and systems to uh, get your heart to go into coherence. And one really interesting part about it that relates to your DIG therapy potentially significantly is that your heart, it emits a pretty dramatically strong electromagnetic field. And hearts contain a variety of different kinds of cells, some of which interestingly are neurons, right? which people don't talk about very much, but your brain is partly in your heart. But it also contains these cells that you know of called uh, pacemaker cells. And mm-hmm. pacemaker cells synchronize with each other via 
electromagnetic fields. So if you get a pacemaker cell and put it in one beaker, and it'll be pulsing on its own, like pop, 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 kind of popping. They they just spontaneously create these oscillations and emit electromagnetic fields with each oscillation. If you have one in one beaker and then one in an adjacent beaker, they will synchronize with each other without touching. And that's how the right. heart cells in our heart all entrain with one another. But interestingly, our heart electromagnetic field that's the the sum of all those pacemaker cells produces such a big field that when you're adjacent to another person your heart is actually subject to their pacemaker cells emitted fields and so when you when you're playing didgeridoo and i invite you to try this if you do it if you put on the heart math you just put a clip on your ear It'll trace on a screen. You can get an app for your phone or through your computer. You watch your heart rate variability. As you're playing Dig, if you play steady and rhythmically, which is generally what you do, your right. heart rate variability pattern will end up, when you go into that sort of deep, clear state that you know sometimes you get into quicker than others, but that, that kind of state when you know you're in the groove, your, yeah. <laughs> your heart rate very your heart rate variability in that state the graph on the screen will correspond precisely to the rhythm of your playing and so hmm. very interestingly when you're playing on someone not only is that same rhythmic pattern influencing their entire nervous system simultaneously these rhythmic pulses you know stimulating various parts of their nervous system and therefore, you know, every part of their body and of course vibrating, you know, their water in their body and whatnot, but also exactly in sync with that, your heart is emitting a very strong electromagnetic field that's measurable within the distance that the person is. So their heart right. is actually experiencing a synchronized sort of musical format in its own language being the language of electromagnetic fields that's basically like a musical part on another instrument being your heart and so when you're in that zone playing the dig you're influencing people as this electromagnetic and audio technology that that is yourself that doesn't happen when you play other instruments that aren't wind instruments unless right. unless you are purposefully synchronizing your breath with the instrument. So a fascinating thing to that, to that just to really quickly. It doesn't so have I've to be had, quick. I can't, I have, I haven't, um, I can't even tell you how many clients, uh, both private sessions and have come up to me at group, group workshops that, uh, will say that they, um, they were listening, they were experiencing it, and then they found that their breathing became in sync with mine. And that, and I never really thought about this until you were saying it just now. And like, that makes so much, I mean, I, obviously it, made, it makes sense to, that, to me that I've always gone, oh, well, maybe they were just, you know, dialing into the patterns or feeling it. And it was just this natural entrainment that happened. But everything that you just kind of put into that, that package of information right there, 
sort of sheds light. I mean, I could, I could see that as the perfect example of, no, that makes a lot of sense. There's so many different things to entrain um, this, uh, this continuity of, of cells essentially that's going to, that occurs. And um, that's, and I've had people describe it, but I've just never, never, not on it, not on, not looked at it on the level having to do with that, not only being the breathing part that they're experiencing, the rhythm that they're experiencing, but now they also have this, um, the, the bioelectric field of the heart, this, the pacemaker, the pacemaker cells of the heart, having the ability to sync that up, which I had no idea about. That's, I knew that if you had them close together and you even touch them in those various experiments that they've done forever with showing them from two different cells from two different, two different um, uh, people, and touching them and then them sinking. I didn't realize that that field was, was much larger than, um, a, you know, direct proximity inside of the actual body itself. Yeah. They've, <clears throat> they've measured the heart's electromagnetic field from the last I saw the last experiment that I saw the farthest distance was 10 feet away that it had been measurable, which is just, pretty extraordinary because you know you're closer to the person than 10 feet generally and then if you're in a room with people I actually like to utilize this in group workshops and I even do this at my concerts sometimes I'll get the whole crowd to breathe with each other because if you get everybody breathing with each other rhythmically right then you have all of these heart fields all synchronized together at the same time and then if that's if the people in the audience or, you know, workshop or whatever environment it is are all breathing together to the music, then it's just, you know, a pretty drastic situation of uh, having the very internal essential workings of all the people synchronized to each other. So it's pretty awesome. I definitely recommend checking out HeartMath. The people that the run the company are, are really cool, nice people, nice to talk to. And uh, I, I love using their software. I've actually brought it up. So I, when we finish our call today, I will be taking a look at it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. You'll, I, I use it quite a bit for self-study, really to get a better sense of what's happening in me when I'm doing you know, this or that. You know, a lot of times when I'm just doing computer work, if I'm working at the computer all day, and I used to do this when I was the I was the director at this health center, and I w- had to work at the computer a lot, and so I would just clip the heart math and have it running in the background all day while I'm working on the computer and train myself to stay in coherence while I was working at the computer. You know, when you were talking about that ten foot proximity, it, it, the first thing that flashed into my head was, you know, the when you have, take a concert setting or even a, a a group workshop setting, and you have people that come into this shared experience, it actually makes a lot of sense. And it, it's so I'm an old I'm an old school raver, and uh, I actually I just went to go see the Prodigy in London uh, about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. And the fascinating thing about that in this, like in this community of, of people who it's their hometown home crowd and, um, very much a, a amazing, like positive, uh, really amazing, uh, just friendly vibe, all of these things. But, uh, I was kind of flashing back to that concert and here you are with, 
you know, 7,000 people and you have this amazing shared experience. And this happens all the time. I mean, it can happen at a, it can happen at a sports game where you get, everybody has this shared experience where they connect and they walk away feeling this. And it's, that's a, it's a fascinating thing to think about that 10 foot proximity and how that can just cascade into the next person and into the next person to the next person where you create this experience, this shared experience of, you know, positivity in one regard, but then at the same time, what I tell my, my clients and I, I talk about at workshops, think about what you're surrounding yourself with at the same time, what you listen to, what you watch, what you visually let into your world, what you auditorially let into your world, how you do your feng shui, because all of these things affect your subtle energy system and it affects the world around you, it affects the people around you, how you carry yourself. So yeah, it's a really, that's a, it's an interesting physical explanation for something that I've always connected with just the subtle energy and consciousness side. But then you also have these other, these biomechanics and these bioelectrical sides that all kind of come together. Um, really cool. Really cool. One thing I like to tell people that's something that's really exciting to me is that trail running is we're just running in general if done properly is what i call the world's best sound therapy and because the heart is influenced its rhythm is influenced by your breath which is what you learn through playing with the heart math is that essentially your breathing pattern is the joystick that controls your heart's pattern and Interestingly, another way to influence the heart pattern is through impact. So you see, you know, you see on movies where somebody's heart stops, what do you do? You pound it, you hit it. Right. And so when you're running, if you synchronize your breathing with your steps, then you're impacting your heart's rhythm through the, the stomp. Boom, 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 boom you know, you're basically striking the heart through these vibrations coming from the earth. So you're basically kind of have this drum beat right. that's coming from your feet, pulsing through your whole body, these, this low frequency pulse that's hitting your heart, impacting it. But then you're also simultaneously breathing in sync with it, which your heart is naturally synchronizing with also. And then, of course, you have these beautiful natural patterns if you're trail running so the rhythm of your feet and therefore your heart and your breath and your body's motions are following the the geography of the nature around you so it's like it's like going to visit the sound therapist that is Gaia and it's one of the my favorite things in the world. I do trail running, you know, constantly. In fact, one of the main reasons I live here is because the trails around here, I run to waterfalls. And then if you are running by water, you're simultaneously, you know, if it's gushing water and waterfalls, you're also getting getting the natural sound therapy of the water sounds all around you. That are also Absolutely. that are also reflecting off of all the natural features and being diffused and you know frequency shifted and all the natural features are actually you know uh, composing the structure of the song. So I definitely for people that are interested in sound therapy, I highly recommend trail running. 
Yeah, and that's that. That sounds like a, a fascinating. I was thinking back to when um, I when I used to run a lot. I actually because I I played uh, played sports in um, in both high school actually before high school, but high school college. Uh, I was I I definitely did sports uh, competitively, and that feeling of running when you when you get into that space where you do you get that that thump that beat that actually you hear in your head and you feel. I've never quite looked at it that way. Um, one of the, the, um, that idea of, and it's funny how you said that that's the best sound therapy. I tell, uh, when I do workshops, I tell people all the time, you know, the, the absolute best way to clear out your energetic system and to release and to find Dance. your peace and your balance is, well, I have to go out and breathe, stand oh, out yeah. in the woods, just take a deep breath. I mean, <sighs> because if you're not able, the most basic way to do it is just take, t- take 10 deep breaths. And either if you're in Montana, I tell people, look up at the sky. They have this amazing sky. When I'm on the seacoast, go to the ocean and breathe in the ocean, but nature itself. So like, I mean, just being in that natural environment, that natural vibration and allowing that to come through you and help you release and take that moment where you go, <sighs> You know, that, that instinctual response of, of releasing stress, which we don't always take the, take the time and have the ability to do. Um, there's a, one of my, uh, my traditional Chinese medicine mentors, who is another acupuncturist, he uh, describes Western culture as being in this state where we're, we're constantly in this, this, uh, this, this stressed fight or, fight or flight state that we haven't released. And uh, if you think about, um, take any any hunter hunting and gathering early human non Western non Western culture human being put them out you know on the the plains by a river or if they you know wherever they are if a uh, a predator comes along and starts chasing them so pack of wolves bear mountain lion whatever it doesn't matter but they they're the first thing you know, they're gonna be running screaming adrenals firing they get away, right? So happy ending. We let them get away. They get away. That first thing they do when they get up the tree, across the river, wherever they go, is that's that instinctual response of releasing and going. <sighs> and in Western culture, all of these different things, whether it's hearing the news and, you know, that being, that being the source of, of stress and anxiety. So that's, you know, a predator chasing you, you know, dealing with work, that's a predator chasing you, dealing with all of these different things we have in our day in Western culture we are not conditioned in our, from our cultural responses, we are not conditioned to allow ourselves to go <sighs> anymore and just let that out. So we have to, this is why we go into conscious meditation. This is why, you know, we visit an acupuncturist, we go do yoga, you know, yoga is a practice, not a destination. You know, that's, you have to do that on a regular basis to maintain that sense of releasing. When we are in corpse pose in Shavasana, that whole is to be there and experience that sense of chi and prana inside of ourselves to be able to feel our subtle energy system and feel that release. Um, but we, we have a really hard time getting there culturally in Western culture because we have so many things that are outside stimulations that are really designed to keep us from getting there. It's because it's constantly, they're constantly trying to get your attention you know, and you're constantly giving your power away, right? You're the most, the, your, your energy, your chi, your sense of peace, that's the greatest power that you have, your sense of health. That's all you. And we give that to all of these other things, you know, and everything is designed to get that attention from you, to get that, to keep you from focusing on self, on your own being. Yeah, because when you, uh, 
are off center like that, then you're looking for something to grab onto and they offer lots of options. Grab onto right. grab onto this beverage. Grab onto right. this new movie. Here's something here's something to hold on to. Right. Yeah. And think about when you're watching a show, you you know, you the and, and so getting back to sound, you know, if you're wa- you can be watching anything that's on main you know uh and any mainstream channel right so like whatever whatever's out there and you can be engaged in that that show and when the commercial comes on the volume levels and the difference between what you were watching and the commercial usually spike you know just a, a few db or not not full db but like point something db and it goes up that little bit and that whole thing is to that from the marketing side is to give you a little shot to get your attention but it's that amplitude change that it 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 grabs you so all these different things are designed to be able to pull you and again it's get your attention pull you away and that's what you're going up against in your ability to manifest the world around you and your ability to manifest your health and your ability to focus on you stay focused on your family, all these different things. It's all of these outside things that are pulling your attention. And I'm by no means saying don't participate in society because that would be ridiculous. Like I, you know, I, I, but at the same time, figure out what works for you that you want to participate in and allow yourself and give yourself permission to be able to let go of things that you don't feel like serve you. Yes, I agree. (laughs) I think that this is a great time to take a little break and we'll get a word from our sponsor and then we'll be back in a few minutes with this exciting conversation with Joseph Carringer. This episode of the Art and Science of Sound Healing is brought to you by Phisonics Academy where you can take one-on-one, private, remote classes with yours truly. Whether you're new to the field of sound and want to start with a very firm foundation, or whether you're a seasoned expert who wants to get clear on some of the basics that you might have skipped in your early studies. Either way, it is always a fun and illuminating experience. Scheduling is flexible, and we do it through Skype, Google Hangouts, or FaceTime, and it is always a whole lot of fun and certainly illuminating. Phisonics Academy. Find out more at phisonics.com. P-H-I-S-O-N-I-C-S dot com. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. Had a little break. We are here with Joseph Carringer, a didgeridoo sound therapist, having an exciting conversation. During the break, besides making myself some more delicious chai, I also, there was a big, beautiful buck in my backyard that distracted me a bit. I believe it's a fairly young one and was actually one that we got to know a little bit when it was a little kid and it was exciting to see him gracing our yard. Showing, That's cool. Yeah, when the bucks show up, they tend to, they don't show up so often. There's deer in our yard every day, but 
the bucks tend to stand very still and look really regal and dignified and stay very still. It's really awesome watching the bucks. We've only seen them, at least the adults have, we've only seen them in our yard a few times, but the family of females and kids is here kind of almost all the time. They hang out in our yard a lot. I'm really fortunate where you, the description of where you are in, uh, in the mountains with the, uh, the waterfalls. I, uh, so I'm, I'm just outside of, uh, I'm still in Allegheny County, but just outside of Pittsburgh proper. Um, so I'm only like 16 miles from downtown Pittsburgh. Uh, but where we sit, uh, on the Monongahela river, we're at 900 feet above sea level, about, I'd say 250, 300 feet above the river. We actually can see the river where, and you can, um, you can feel it. I mean, it's a, it's a big, it's a, it's a big river. And then we're right again, we're at the end of a, in a dead end neighborhood at the end of a dead end road, um, next to a ravine, which is where the, uh, three quarters of a mile up the ravine is where the end of the Pittsburgh coal seam was. And they were never able to finish mining it because, uh, they couldn't build a road to get to it. And this is, uh, when you look at the area from space, it's, it's a, it's a really amazing juxtaposition where our house is at and where it ends uh, into the forest is just that it's forest. And we have like this crazy, like, you know, 500 year old Oak. That's just like right off the side of our house. It's this massive Oak that I, in order for me to hug it, I have to take three of my arms to get three of my arm widths to go around it. Um, yeah. and, uh, we have a waterfall that comes up with heavy rainstorms and, uh, and whatnot, but then directly across the river begins that, um, that start of, of that, of that Pittsburgh region industry. So we're like, we live, we live on the invisible gray line of the yin yang where the natural world meets the, the physical world or the, the man-made world. And it's a, it's a very fascinating place to live and to be because on one side I can sit there and my left ear hears nothing but forest <laughs> and my right ear hears nothing but industry. It's a, it's, it's a, it's wild. Whoa. That is definitely something to think about probably often while you're <laughs> sitting and playing the didgeridoo. I do. <laughs> I do. I believe it. One, one of the things on your bio you mention, and this is something, another sort of fascinating similarity between us is we both apparently really appreciate travel and uh, you mention being in the jungles of Peru, the beaches of Jamaica, and the big sky country of Montana, which is interesting to me because I haven't been in Peru, but I've spent a lot of time in the jungles of the Yucatan and uh, a lot of time in Jamaica and also a lot of time in Montana. And uh, wondering if, if there's anything you can share with us that you've learned in particular from those places that have influenced your, you know, life philosophy and possibly more particularly your sound work. Um, Jamaica is a fascinating place for me on a bunch of different yeah, levels. Uh, it's crazy. My, my, uh, my wife and I, when we moved to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, we were uh, adopted by these two men that we call our affectionately call their gay dads. And, uh, one of them had started a company called Jamaica escapes.com. And, uh, 
when he uh when he passed away my wife had taken it over but for the years that uh they were um they were alive uh we uh we would go down to jamaica and do work for um for sasha down there and um we also went down with him a couple of times and the so i had a very first hand uh deep immersion into the culture and into the land and into the people. When I was at Syracuse, I took a Caribbean cultures course. I was an anthropology major. And this Caribbean cultures course I took back in the mid nineties, I'm thinking that I'm going to be studying Jamaica because what, uh, what, you know, what else is there in the Caribbean other than Jamaica? It's just Jamaica, right? Well, that in this particular class, it ended up being one chapter that we discussed one afternoon or one morning uh, because the, professor that was teaching that particular course was all focused on Haiti. That's where he was doing all this field research. So I know a tremendous amount about Haiti. And I, at that point, I knew really very little about Jamaica. And um, so then went down the first time in 2003. Um, then again, we six times over the course of a, a decade. And um, this one particular trip, I can't remember. It was the, the one before we went and we did the, uh, uh, we did a retreat, um, a second holistic retreat in Jamaica. We did a swatch and a variety of different things. It was the, it was the trip before that one. Uh, it was this incredible sense of mortality that I, and, and just understanding one, like the fragility of the living condition, not the human condition, but more so like just anything. And it was everything from harvesting uh, crabs on the beach uh, with a machete digging out their holes to collect crabs to go fishing with one of the local fishermen who was teaching me how to shore cast um, to just experiencing uh, what it's like to be in a place where you can you live subsistently you know and and things you know things die and it's just it's just it's part people look at it a completely different way and experience it a completely different way so that's that was one of the, the, the Jamaica has always been for me that it's a beautiful place, but it's a place where you can sense your, you can, you can sense, and it's, it's so funny because it's not in the brochure, right? It's a sense of mortality, uh, a very bizarre thing to, to say about a place that's so beautiful, but you're on this, you know, volcanic rock in the, in the middle of the ocean or that volcano or this limestone rock in the middle of the ocean. And, um, it just has this, it has this very, this very primal, uh, feel to it. And it's a, it's a fascinating culture because it's, uh, you have, um, you have this Afrikan root, uh, run through a British filter and all of this different, uh, just coalescing of all of, of all of these different cultural identities inside of it. Cause it's not just British and African. It's also Chinese and Scots and Indian, you know, curry goats, one of the national dishes, uh, curry, curry goat did not happen because of the, of, of the, uh, the, the European, uh, the, the European, uh, plantation owners, you know, that happened because of somebody they brought over. So Jamaica, Jamaica is just a fascinating place to, to just to go and experience. And, and when we go, like we don't do resorts, like we, we go and we stay in, we stay in, uh, you know, uh, villas and, 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 uh, and small residences almost and, and do that. So it's a very, it's a very different immersion. Um, so yeah, that's Jamaica, per Peru. Um, I got really sick. Real quick, I got really, really sick. Yeah, really go ahead. quickly. I just want to interrupt, and I won't tell the story because it's too long. But 
on my second day in Jamaica, I got kidnapped. And so I definitely had an an extreme... So you had an experience of a sense of mortality. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Oh my God. Very very directly so. But anyway, go go back to Peru. Actually, the one thing I have to know is where, uh, where, where were you? Was it Kingston? I was just outside of Montego Bay. No way. Okay. Wow. That's so wild. It okay. was intense, but that's a long story, but one worth telling I'm, me at some point. We'll catch up on that another time. Yeah. I'm glad you're safe. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, uh, Peru, uh, I, um, I was really, really tripped out at the idea of going to South America and being, um, uh, being, experiencing the water. That it scared actually to the point of that I was I had I developed a really unhealthy OCD about it. I had gotten and I I, I bought one of those incredibly expensive UV one sterilizer things that that kill everything in the water and all of that, which is smart and I, and I definitely recommend to people like you know do all of the smart safe water things. Um, but I uh, when I found my didge that I w- ended up recording the. Uh, uh, the meditations when I was down there in the Peruvian meditations, uh, I ended up coming coming out of the shaman shop in Cusco and uh, meeting a, uh, a Peruvian a Cusco local who had a djembe with him and club flyers. You know, and club flyers look the same in any language. <laughs> and it turns out that he was part of the shamanic rock band that was based out of Cusco. And they were performing that night and he wanted me to come perform with them. And uh, so I was invited right after I picked this dig up, I played, you know, he, and I, he was jamming with his djembe in this alleyway and I'm jamming with the didge and he was like, Oh my God, you gotta come play with us. And so my, my horrible, you know, three-year-old level Spanish and his non-existent English, we figured out that I was going to go play with him. Um, before they started the, um, before they started performing, they did a Sampalo wood ceremony. And then they started passing a pitcher of water and ceremony that everybody was drinking from. And I didn't even think about it because I'd set my beer down because I was only drinking things out of, out of bottles, uh, yeah. set my beer down when they started doing the, uh, some Hollywood ceremony. Cause I'm like, Oh, okay, we're going into ceremony. I'm not going to, I, I don't, I don't drink alcohol in ceremony. So I put my beer down and then all of a sudden they start passing this pitcher. Didn't even think twice about the fact that I was chugging back water. And by three o'clock the next, um, three, three, four o'clock in the morning, I sat straight up with the intestinal stuff starting. And, uh, my wife, you know, at the same, she and I at the exact same time, we're like, Oh my God, I drank the water. And, uh, so that started a process that was ended up being, uh, a 12 hour ordeal, which is incredibly, incredibly short. And I, and I'll explain how it ended up being so short. So my made it through the, made it through the mountains of this retreat center that we were all staying at. And uh, we're going to be staying at that evening and everyone was going to be doing a sweat lodge, which I'd never made. Uh, but I ended up under this glass pyramid in this retreat center. And my, uh, my mentor at Hubble, who the acupuncturist and, and shamanic practitioner uh, ends up lacing me up with all of this radical abdominal acupuncture. My, my wife is playing drum and I start chanting and I started with Rom, and literally just this whisper. Cause I had no, I had no energy. I was just like, I had, I had, just it, I was done like I the closest it just felt like dying and um after 45 minutes that rom became rom, and I'm just like hey you know all you hear throughout the entire retreat center is just this like vocalization that's coming out of me and ended up um 
feeling my chi restore itself. Like I actually felt alive again. And right after I finished all of the chanting that I, I felt compelled to do at that point, I looked at my wife and I looked at Ed and I was like, wow, I feel, and I was just like this. I was like, wow, I feel a lot better. And I went to sit up and Ed was looking at me because he knew what was going to happen. I had no idea. I sat up after he pulled the needles out of me and no, no, I, uh, I fell straight back because my, my chi was restored, but my physical body hadn't caught up with it yet. And Ed just, you know, he caught me, put me back down gently. And he's like, He's like, why don't you just rest for a while? And I ended up passing out for about, I'd say it was like two and a half, three hours, woke back up. By the next morning, I was able to eat a banana. Um, and uh, I I'd started to feel better by that afternoon. I had um, started to, uh, I think I moved on to like, you know, a piece of a sandwich or something. And then within a day, I was eating again. Now, there were people who were on this trip that once they went down, they never came back. Uh, the fact that I knocked this thing out in like anywhere between it was like 12 to like 16 hours. And when and, and it was a slow comeback, like it wasn't as the, the worst of it was over. And it's still my, it took a while for my body to be able to, to recover from the, the shock of everything, but I was functional. I felt good. I was able to put nutrients in my body. I wasn't, I wasn't experiencing all of the symptoms of Giardia essentially. Um, that was an amazing experience. That was when I learned that you have the ability to heal anything inside of you. But those, the key word is you. You have the ability to heal anything that's going on inside of you. You heal you. And that was the major discovery for me in Peru. I was going through that. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, the trip itself was a was just a phenomenal experience and just filled with you know, that was the, I would say that was the, the, the crown, the, the, the crown jewel of a series of other things that supported it, that were still part of that whole process of discovery and healing and understanding for myself. You know, it was very much a, a trip of, of, of myself. So nice. Yeah. I, uh, I've definitely faced a similar situation in terms of being in uh, Mexico I go to Mexico quite a bit and participate in dance ceremonies where we dance for four days straight and do a sweat lodge in the morning and a sweat lodge at night. And I've been in a lot, a lot of ceremonies in Mexico where I get past a cup or a gourd of water. And I'm also extremely careful, you know, to keep myself from getting food poisoning when I'm on these journeys. But at the same time, when I'm in a ceremony, it's always this sort of moment of deciding whether or not I believe that, you know, the circumstances are going to prevent my getting ill or not. And right. uh, definitely chosen both ways on either side of it. And fortunately have not gotten food poisoning from any of those times, although I've had some pretty extraordinary food poisoning experiences both in Mexico and in India. Um, so I, I know the intensity that food poisoning can bring. And I also, I really like your story about the intense chanting. One thing that is not often enough in my experience mentioned or employed or taught in the field of sound healing or sound therapy or 
therapeutic sound is the benefit of intensity in some occasions that gentle, peaceful kind of sounds are not always what's called for. Sometimes aggression and intensity and impact are super useful. They're part of the repertoire of the human experience. And sometimes, you know, if you're fighting a dragon, maybe, you know, gentle... Yeah, you're not going to beat it with a feather. <laughs> yeah, gen- <laughs> gentle touch isn't always the right kung fu right. style. And in the the field of, you know, using sound for therapeutic purposes, there's an extreme focus on gentle, peaceful types of sounds. And um, it's also considered common knowledge among people in this area of interest that there was the, the book that came out, I think, in the 60s or 70s called The Secret Life of Plants, I believe, is where it included somebody playing you know, rock and roll music for plants and then symphony music for plants and the rock and roll kills all the plants and the symphony music heals them or something along those lines or the sprouts. The, 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 (laughs) the plants that were playing, that were hearing the, uh, the symphony music grew better than the plants that were, uh, I don't think rock and roll killed them. I think, (laughs) I think they just outperformed them is what it was. But that's led to this sort of common knowledge that I find that people sort of take as just everybody knows this, that rock and roll is bad for you. And um, I've had a lot of experiences to the contrary. And particularly, I've come to look at it as in terms of hard and aggressive sounds being useful for breaking things apart for destroying things and a lot of healing involves you know breaking things apart if you for example have you know some sort of crystallized structure in your psychology you know you're bound up say you grew up in the suburbs and your parents are sort of very judgmental and your teachers are judgmental and the students at your school are judgmental and you're 14 and you just feel this psychological sort of you're bound in these psychological chains. Intense, aggressive music can help us break through that and find our way to who we are, particularly when one needs to break apart something, which obviously you had to break apart or uh, remove or overpower whatever organisms were in there trying to take over your gut that the intense sounds were more useful than, you know, just a soft, soothing bedtime song. Oh yeah. There was a whispers and gentle ohms. We're not, we're not going to get get rid of that. Um, no. And then, you know, and there's a, there's a lot to be said to that. Cause it's, it's fascinating. Cause like there's some music that I, I don't, I don't gravitate towards, but I never, I never judge it. And I mean, actually, there's a lot of music that I don't gravitate towards, but I don't judge it because there's something that resonates for everybody for where they're at. And we're really fortunate with those regards that it's accessible. But like, you know, why and, and, and why somebody listens to a Rob Zombie or a Marilyn Manson, which is a particular type of music that someone might say, you know, is dark. And but they're like you're saying, like, if you're in that space at that time, you know, 
if uh, any of the, the listeners go and look up the prodigy that that's that show that I was just at, you might look at it as electronic punk music. Um, and it, and you might think that it's aggressive and what's really amazing is that crowd of people, there wasn't an aggressive soul that I saw anywhere near me in that crowd, but we were all, we were all listening to this really, and it was the best sound that I've ever heard in a live music venue ever. And feeling these intense, you know, break beats, going through the sound system and these, and it just, um, and how it was vibrating. I mean, you it came out of there and it's just a sound that resonates, that resonates with me is, is listening to those, uh, electronic, electronic music tones, those electronic music sounds. And it came I found that music at a very pivotal, pivotal transformational portion of my life when I needed a sense of breaking things up and finding myself and finding a, a, an alternative community to be able to interact with. And that music was foundational inside of that. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely spot on. There's to uh, whether, you know, there's, oh, there's a time and a place for all the tones that exist around us. You know, if I'm having difficulty using or getting, having a person release, I may grab a singing bowl to get that metal sound because, you know, a, uh, the singing bowl that I have, which is a, uh, a fourth octave B, uh, metal, modern metal bowl just has a really interesting way of cutting through. My fifth octave C has a very interesting way of cutting through in a frequency that the dig doesn't produce, you know? This connects to something else that's not about sound in particular, but something I find really fascinating. This this modern culture of, you know, generally sort of Western culture that's uh, largely evolved around uh, yoga and things called alternative therapies or holistic healing. There's this sort of, you know, culture that's evolved around all these things you know the people that <clears throat> shop at whole foods or whatnot and people that go get massages and people that are members of the yoga club and such that there is a a real focus in this sort of paths presented to people upon empowerment and doing things that make you feel better and doing things that are kind of easy and or relatively easy or things that yeah empower you i think is my the best word for what i'm getting at and in my experience in more traditional indigenous cultural spiritual paths and healing paths there's a significant focus on doing things that are really difficult and humble not comfortable <laughs> and uncomfortable and yep. <laughs> humbling things that are yes. that are in a sense in in one way disempowering and particularly disempowering the sort of false sense of you know what you know people might use the word ego but i yep. i don't know if that's the word i'm looking for this Things that that uh, kind of remind me of what you were saying about Jamaica, you know, realizing the fragility of life and putting ourselves in circumstances where you realize just how weak you are and just how lucky you are to have 
survived this far and how easily the universe can, you know, blow you over and how much we lie to ourselves and are dis not genuine and putting ourselves in circumstances like very extreme sweat lodges where it's just like feels like you're about to die this is so hard i feel like i'm burning or uh fasting for long periods of time sitting on a mountain with no food or water for days or weeks at a time without anything protecting you from the elements these really difficult humbling kind of experiences are something that aren't a part of this kind of modern western holistic alternative therapy culture and i'm very interested in how to integrate some of those humbling activities a little more into what we do and into this culture you know, we have a very, we have a very young culture and we have a very, uh, it's like this, it's, it's, it, well, it is a melting pot and it's this convergently evolved melting pot culture that we have, you know, being, being members of, of, of this, uh, this confluence of, uh, of, of cultures that's happened here in the United States, um, but we have a we're missing a, a lot of big components of stable uh successful cultures of the past you know we don't have in the united states this is something that i that i'm not making this stuff up or pulling it out of my head I, as something like stream of consciousness this is something that i studied at syracuse uh decades ago and we and we talked about it extensively which is you know we're missing things like rites of passage right yes. so the, the coming from coming from being a a small child to a to a to a teenager from a teenager to an adult or pre-adult you know let's call we we say you turn 18 you're an adult but (laughs) are you really an adult i don't really think so so like we don't have these 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 uh these hallmarks we uh we don't have elders in the way that other cultures have elders i mean european society is a fascinating place because it's not you know i'm not speaking about these things in terms of like oh you have to go see an indigenous uh first nations culture to find these things you can go to europe and find these things you can go to china i grew up uh i grew up in a filipino family uh my sister and i were the only two uh cousins of all of our cousins in the uh the, the polynesian asian family that looked white so that there was a very fascinating place to grow up and asia so we grew up with asian uh, belief systems, Polynesian belief systems, and, and Asian and Polynesian culture as being our primary culture, and so seeing uh, roles of um, various levels of age groups where people fit into things—it's something that you don't necessarily see. And uh, not having these rites of passage that 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 are not necessarily comfortable things to experience. Uh, that you go to prove yourself, you know, an African one African tribe, you know, takes in. Uh, they do, uh, they, they have a, um, uh, I think it, it, I'm not sure if it's the, uh, the Kung, it might be the Kung, the, the Kung Bushmen uh, that have the, uh, the circumcision ceremony at 14 years old for, for the young boys. There's another African tribe that has a, uh, a ceremony where the, the women are, a young woman getting a rite of passage is placed inside of a, uh, a mud anipi essentially that's closed off with only one pinhole of light that's allowed to go through and they sit in there for a number of days. You know, we have turning 21 and going out and drinking with your friends. 
you know, that's, that's a very like American Western thing. And this is what we, we talked about back then. So yeah, finding this, this, this point now where we have this younger generation, which I mean, we didn't, I'm, I'm 45 years old. And like the idea yoga was something that hippies did when I was, when, you know, when I was a kid, like that wasn't, you know what I mean? Like we did, I, I, it, it amazed me to, 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 to discover and find like, Oh my God, there's all of this stuff that goes on with it. But like, you know, it, I grew up on a military base. So there were, there were certain things that were just always ascribed being something that was, you know, too far out or too this or too that. Um, and you look at, uh, you you look at now what's happening with these you know these these handful of younger generations that are behind uh, behind Gen X right and and having the access to to yoga to holistic philosophies to the to belief systems yet still doing it from this orientation of being anchored in Western culture but at least they're finding out how to develop rites of passage. You know, maybe that's part of what taking that 200 hour teacher training course that they wanted to do and, and whether or not someone's fully qualified to be a yoga instructor after 200 hours, I, I don't know, but I do know that that person did something for themselves that's really meaningful that allowed them to be able to, to transition and learn something, maybe taking a, you know, a, uh, so they, uh, uh, a, sh- a shamanic, a shamanic journeying uh, apprenticeship or something, these different things, people are searching and finding, and I don't know. And so, which is important. And I think that's really good in you now figuring out how to make the things that they're finding be consistently substantial and positive. That's the next step, I think. Yeah. I uh, also organize festivals and, festival type events and I'm always working on and kind of brainstorming on how to integrate more rite of passage initiation challenging humbling type activities into these cult this culture where uh, generally everything's focused on empowerment and uh, you know you can manifest anything and you're perfect as you are and all these things you you don't need to change and cuz th- th- this kind of i've experienced uh i've benefited so much from the difficult oftentimes painful initiation experiences that were oh, yeah. guided by my teachers that in a in a sense that those kind of experiences when i look back on my life are the really the the best things that happened to me and yeah. one thing that just comes to mind in terms of uh, rite of passage type experiences for people interested in working with sound that I naturally did, I don't know, just because I'm a wild man or whatnot, but things like, for example, if, if someone were in didgeridoo training in camp or something and I were designing it, I might include something like a rite of passage where you play for, I don't know, six hours straight for three days in a row or play the drum for 10 hours straight, three days in a row or playing for extremely long periods of time would be one kind of rite of passage that would be possible in the world of sound. sound. And to any of our listeners... You don't have to wait for someone to set that up. 
I highly Bro, recommend <laughs> light yourself a fire in your fireplace or out back and uh, start at sunset and go till sunrise. And I guarantee looking back on it, you'll realize it was probably the greatest sound experience you ever had. And the amount of learning that will result from that kind of experience is in, uh, inestimable, inestimable. <laughs> Um, we, we don't, um, you're, you're, you're spot on and, and, and seeing, we, we gravitate away from a gray from discomfort. And I agree with my, my most profound lessons in my life. And I look at it like I wouldn't, if they hadn't been for the difficult and for the uncomfortable, I don't think I would have learned anything. You know, that's like, it just, it, 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 it's been, the the challenging the difficult the uncomfortable the the things where I I I push the envelope um, those are the places that I that I really learned I mean when I started my practice uh, one of the biggest lessons that I had early on was when I was um, doing a combined digit acupuncture session um, and I was in my office getting ready to walk to the acupuncturist office that I was going to be doing the combined session at. And I felt the start of a headache and I knew that it was not a normal headache and I knew it was going to get bad. And I didn't, I, I lived uh, where my, my home and my office was, was about two New York city blocks from where I was going to be walking to go to the acupuncture, uh, the acupuncture studio. And um, as I did the walk, then the, the, the headache progressed, progressed. And by the time I got into the acupuncture studio, it was a migraine at that point. And not to the point of debilitating that I couldn't function, but to the point that I was just like, I didn't want to deal. And I said to myself, I need to do this session and get through this and present myself as if nothing is wrong with me. It, because if I'm going to do this, I have to be able to do this and be 100% for my client when I'm doing this under any circumstance. And this is just the universe throwing a test at me. And so at the same time, you have to come to a point where you realize, you know, not, in, and, and, and wasn't life threatening, you know, wasn't going to kill me was definitely painful. And it was one of the, for me, physically, one of the worst things that I've, I had to experience doing the work that I do, but it never got that bad again. And I survived it. And I was like, okay, this is, you know, I, I now know that I can survive anything. A lot of times when the universe gives you these tests and these opportunities to be able to impress yourself with what you're able to withstand, people walk away from it because it doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. You know, that's you. And, and so having the ability to, you know, in, in a mindful, in a mindful way and understanding, you know, don't ever put yourself in danger. Don't ever violate, you know, don't ever mess up your safety. Like all of those things, like all of, all of the standard things, but don't be afraid to see what your limits are either. And, uh, and, and that's, that's kind of, that's something that I think we've Western cultures strayed a little too far away from um, in, in many of its environments is that we need to come back to that sense of finding finding how much moxie we actually have <laughs> indeed i'm very interested in uh introducing that kind of thing in various ways into this sound therapy sound healing culture another thing that is somewhat related to it that's something that is distinctly absent and extraordinarily challenging to uh to make it through or to figure out how to proceed best is that in this field of 
you know, therapeutic sound work that there is, and this is, this is not just in this field, but it's, it's a general feature of this new social media oriented culture. And so it's, it's spread through all, all domains is that there is no distinguishing feature of genuine knowledge and expertise. So in academic fields, for example, you at least have stuff like degrees. You know, if you're, right. say, if you're, you know, studying anthropology, you meet an anthropologist who has a bachelor's degree. You meet another one who has a master's degree, another one who has a PhD, another one who's a tenured professor. And even though based on those, you know, somewhat shallow designations, you at least have some sort of rough structure of being able to identify people that you expect will have some level of expertise. So if you're an undergraduate student at a university and you're talking to a tenured professor, there's this natural relationship of both of you understand that this person knows a lot more than you do about their field of knowledge. And then when we're working in the internet and social media and when people are learning most of what they learn from YouTube and from reading blogs, and then a lot of people in the you know sound therapy world get a lot of their knowledge from weekend workshops and reading books and getting some sort of three-day certifications that right. there's this really dysfunctional way of distinguishing expertise. The If you have a really good website and a lot of YouTube followers, then you are deemed, you're, you're treated kind of like a tenured professor would be in the field of uh, physics or something. And, and, and there's no way to really distinguish very well. And then in communications, everyone's opinions and statements are on this on equal foundation. So there's no way for someone to identify, oh, this person knows a lot more about music theory than anybody here. This person's a right a music theory expert. And when they're talking about scales, what they say is coming from, you know, forty years of study and experience. And then someone else you know, just started playing guitar last year and they're sort of on equal equal standing in the conversation and it creates a very, uh, a network of misinformation is supported by this lack of uh, way to identify people's level of expertise. And a lot of people claim the solution is to start having, you know, certification programs but then it's then you're left with who who certifies the certifiers so here's a fascinating thing about that i i and i i i'm to, to just to jump in with that yeah, like go I, ahead. I uh so i have i have no uh i have no formal training from anyone like that i i, I will say that right out of the gate and when i was on the board of the new england holistic health association I was the representation of the 
uh, of the, the essentially the, the person who's achieved their level of education, understanding and expertise through apprenticeships. And so very old school, right? How did I, how did I learn Reiki through a person that, uh, that ended up in my life that came back from Japan after being in the military and had studied Reiki in Japan and was hanging out in a coffee house uh, doing Reiki and showing people. And so it came from this interaction and this experience. My first sweat ended up at Thomas One Wolf, who, when he was alive, he was the last full-blooded descendant of Chief Seattle and the spiritual leader of the 500 Nations, ended up at his house by accident, quite by one of those non-accident accidents because <laughs> of a mutual, you know, mutual friend um, who was like a godson to him and took me to go see him because he's like you're he's like i don't know why but you need to go see thomas and brought me to thomas's and Tom, and we talked for a while and he's, he's got like, a great name by the way yeah he, <laughs> he was a, he was an amazing man he was an amazing man and my friend michael he thomas looks at michael and goes michael bring joseph back tomorrow he's gonna sweat with us like i wasn't given a choice i wasn't asked i was told um there are these experiences that have happened in my life when I recognize that my, my, my understanding of a shamanic spirituality, again, one, you don't wake up one day and become a shaman, like you're not a shaman, but you can follow a path. My friend Gary Lockwood, who is a, uh, he's an Ojibwa pipe carrier. He studied with the Ojibwa. Uh, he is a, he is a white man. He was, a, he was the, the Vietnam vet who was speaking at Kent State. Uh, after he got back from Vietnam when all of that happened. And uh, when he was at my house years ago and, um, and he's like, he does, didn't like being called a, a medicine man, didn't like being called a shaman, didn't like being called a, an, an elder. And I'm like, and I think at that point, Gary was uh, 65 or 67. It was an odd number 60. So I, but it was, and it was, a, it was up there. And I remember looking at him going, Gary, you need to understand that me at this point, I'm looking at you and you have stepped into your elder being and this is who you are. So it's okay. And if someone wants to look at you and recognize that you're, you have achieved a medicine man, you have achieved elder, you have achieved shaman. You just have to take it because that's where you are. These going to a weekend course and getting your secret shaman decoder ring and your magic pendant <laughs> because you did. And I'm not trying to be mean in any way whatsoever, but I want, it's a, it's a deep it's funny, sense of, of reality. Yeah, it is. It, it is. But you, you go and you do that and it's like, okay, I've done, I, I experienced the soul retrieval and I did all of these really typical standard things. And now I'm a shaman and you, and it's like, no, now you have the opportunity to be able to make some really big mistakes for yourself to be able to start learning how to fix yourself. Cause a shaman, the, the only thing a shaman does, and it's funny cause this goes back to one of my mentors, the shaman's biggest ability is having the shaman's biggest power is having the ability to trick a person into healing themselves. And mm -hmm. the only, and, that, and trick is the most important part of that. And the only way you learn how to do that is by going through the difficult and taxing work of figuring out how to heal yourself so that you can provide a yellow brick road of understanding to the person that's in front of you so that they know that they can see you, that you've done the work and you describe and you coach and you let them know how they do the work for themselves. But you're not, you're not doing it for them. You're not healing them. And so these, these programs, so I didn't, when I say that I, I, I have no formal training, I've been very blessed that I've had all of these experiences and things that have come together. Like I did my EMT at Northeastern University. I uh, studied anthropology at Syracuse University. 
Um, there is not a, when, when I've had people ask me, have you, um, have you, have you gotten a degree or a certification in sound therapy? And I look at them and I say, from where? Now I'm not knocking any of the programs that are out there. I actually think that there's some amazing programs out there, but when I, I look at them, I go, where would a person like myself go to study sound therapy when I would be looking for an accredited, an accredited school of some kind? And there's not an accredited program. And I did the one thing that you learn when you go to university, which is you prove that you can teach yourself things and you can learn. I'm going to be my own best student, my own best teacher in many ways. And I'm going to be a student and I'm going to go out and learn. And I've been, again, very blessed to have the apprenticeships with traditional Chinese medicine from all of the acupuncturists. Worked with chiropractors, a really, really rare case, but excited to share this information with people. And I think that there needs to be something out there, but where do you begin to standardize? That's the, that, that really is the fundamental question inside of all of this, because you have this convergence of traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, sound theory, uh, music theory, all of these physics. I mean, how much physics is involved in what we do? Just looking at the waves, right? So there's a lot. There's a, there, and, and to say that you're going to go to a one weekend course and play it and be shown how to wave a tuning fork over a person. And now you're going to be a practitioner when you have no understanding of counseling. You have no understanding of, uh, of, of what happens when, say, a person does have a, um, they're, they're dealing with, from a shamanic standpoint, an entity that you're now struck with, or, you know, there's like all of these different things that can go all of these different places. And one weekend course is not going to, and a certification is not going to give you the foundation to be a complete practitioner. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very <laughs> tricky because I'm definitely not suggesting the sort of answer, if there is an answer to this condition is that, you know, there's some accredited programs because like you said, it, at least from my experience, uh, my apprenticeships with really difficult and deep teachers in things that weren't sound oriented were the things that are the um, essential foundation that gives me a feeling of strength in what I do. For example, for, you know, my, my Qigong teachers put me through crazy, crazy, crazy experiences. You know, things like, um, just one example is having to sit there. Well, I had to smile from the time I woke up until I fell asleep 20, you know, every time I was conscious had to smile for weeks just a little smile and stuff like that has it's it's peculiar and it seems like it has nothing to do with sound therapy work but those kind of experiences are really where if i'm playing a musical instrument for somebody's benefit it's those kind of peculiar experiences that are deep and that dig just to the center of ourselves that really set the foundation and then you know uh, sweat lodges and and vision quests and you know have having these trials and riding in the back of a car on a some crazy gravel road in some foreign country and you know being in the heat all these kinds of things that are the essence of traditional training where you know 
medicine people train their apprentices, those kind of things uh, aren't appropriate for certification programs. No, and you can't schedule you can't that you can't schedule them in that <laughs> way either, which is the tricky thing. And so, and just for everybody who's listening, I am not in any, and I, neither one of us are in any way. I think uh, diminishing what you can what you can learn from going doing these these certification courses. But what I what I'm trying to communicate is, you are the sum total of your entire story, and wherever you are in that moment when you are doing a session, sound session or otherwise, and, and, and inside of any of these holistic arts, for a client that you're working with, who you are as a practitioner at that moment is the sum total of your story. So who I am now from when I started my practice in 2004 and what I'm able to do, the ditch playing is, is you know, I, I would like to say the same. You know, there's a consistency there. There's a continuity. You know, the finite nuances between my playing you know, over the course of 20 years, it's, there's been a pretty consistent level. And, and, but that with that in mind, the level of effectiveness in terms of being able to hold down a session for a client, there's been an incredible bell curve with that as time has gone on. And that comes through the wisdom of being like literally just being and being open to learning, being a constant student, being constantly aware of, of how things are changing and growing. So again, it goes back to that. You don't go to a weekend class to, to study shamanism and walk away being a shaman and no more so than you would go to a weekend workshop to do, say, you know, or go to a 200 hour, start yoga, go to a 200 hour teacher training for yoga. And that that's it. I, now I've got my 200 hours of yoga and I'm, I don't need to learn anymore. I'm going to be a teacher. Some of the best yoga instructors I've ever seen have never taken a yoga certification, but they've studied yoga their whole lives. You know, that's the looking at things as a, as a, as a study. Like when I started doing the sound therapy work, my goal was to take everything that I was learning and be able to make it readily available for other people that wanted to do didgeridoo based sound therapy because I didn't have a resource to go to and I had to really start figuring it out. And that's why I, I have the content on my website that I have and I've put it there and I answer questions for people and I'm open about, about working, working with people to learn and understand because we, we need people inside of that progress and progression to be able to make sure that there are people getting good information, but it's not, there's no, there's no, uh, end point to it. It is a lifelong work. It is a practice, not a finish. It is a, you know, there is, there's, there's no end destination to it. You continue it through your life. And I knew that when I signed up for it, when I started to have the realizations of what was going on, much like I'm sure you, you have years ago, that this is something that is an ongoing work and you're never done. And that's the most important thing with all of these, like, you know, the, your certification, it's awesome. Like not you, but whoever out there is listening that has, has those things, by all means, be proud of it. But that's just, it's more like a merit badge in, uh, in Cub Scouts or, or Boy Scouts than a graduation or a destination. Now go get your next thing. Now go learn your next thing. Make yourself better. Always challenge yourself. Never, never be satisfied with where you are because you can always become a better person. And that's the important thing about those, those, that aspect. Yeah. I think as I think upon the sound therapy practitioners with whom I'm familiar, which at this point is a pretty large number, 
that there is definitely a distinguishing sort of a, a distinguishing feature that there is a sort of a certain type of person who is constantly as just a part of their lifestyle and their personality they're constantly learning and mm-hmm. studying and then there are people who and that that type of person tends to be very quick to admit their lack of knowledge the very mm-hmm. person who seems to be learning the most and studying the most is also the person who is the most comfortable admitting how little they know. And then there are sort of on the other side of this imaginary spectrum, people who seem to really believe that whatever they think they know is just pretty solid and they're sticking with it and don't have a whole lot more to learn. And the first uh, sort of spectrum of people are the ones with whom I would trust my health a little more likely. And the, the second, not so much. Yeah, even though what the second category might do might be, you know, pretty good stuff. There's definitely infinite ongoing training. You, you, don't, you don't meet a medicine person who, you know, just did their medicine person study for a couple weeks and now they've graduated and now they're the medicine person of their culture. Right. Well, and the other, the other side of all of this is it, and and I, I, I put this out there pretty regularly other than, you know, when you look, when to put it into the context of the dig, right? We know the dig produces infrasound. We know infrasound waves do a particular thing. Uh, Or theoretically the physics and the physiological come together for the infrasound and and we've seen we've seen physical results um meditatively we the the ama the british journal of medicine all medical sources say that meditation is good for you uh stress reduction is good for you and and the dig is effective at helping people get into meditative states okay that central thing, that second thing, that energetic aspect of that whole umbrella of holistic, and then you can get into all of the theories of, of what is a, a sophagio tone is going to do to you or the, the chakras and the clearing and all of that. That is just theory. And it's all just theory, really. We don't have, I mean, there's, we, we, don't, we don't even understand the full mechanisms of healing and why healing occurs. And there's a, an acupuncturist that I work with that it was, it took me a while and I understood what he said when he said it, but it took me a while to really embrace it, which was that it's all placebo, everything, Yes, you know, and, 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 and when I, when I say that I'm not, and, and, and Yuri wasn't either taking away from like all of the, you know, the studies and the, and, and the medicine and all, we see all these different things, but at the end of the day, whether, whether a medicine has been proven to work or not through the study that they did, a person, if, they, if you do not believe that what you're taking is going to help you, if you do not believe that that surgery is going to help you, if you don't believe that that chiropractor is going to help you, it's not going to work. So what does that say about the power of belief at the very beginning of all of this stuff? And in the end of the day, it's all just placebo. And that's not taking away the power of what doctors do, uh, pharmaceuticals do, 
didgeridoo players do, singing bowl therapists, gong therapists, cranial sacral, massage, chiropractic, they all do something. But that power really lies at the end of the day inside of the client or patient, depending on what your background is. And everything is just theory. So people who have this like this belief that like my like I know I know everything. It's like no, you don't know anything. And I'm I'm one of those people. I don't know any like I I've I've I get enough information on a regular basis to let me know exactly how much I have no clue about on a regular basis. <laughs> what what you just said um kind of brought into it sort of, uh, I guess, solidified a way of saying something I was thinking is that there's a danger. Say you go to a weekend course and you learn some specific sound therapy protocol and theory. You know, maybe you learn that, you know, you learn about the seven chakras system and you learn that. For each chakra, it you know is associated with these parts of your body and mind and spirit, and what those are and what the sort of challenges associated with each chakra are, and then you learn in that weekend course that this singing bowl corresponds to this chakra and this one to this and this and this, and you get seven singing bowls and you learn this whole system, and say you go out there and you really believe that all of that's true and you base your entire practice around it and then you're doing sessions with people and working with them and really helping them and it's really working great and people are having incredible benefits and their benefits really match your theory that you're presuming is the basis of it and then suppose you know, some scientific study comes out or some sort of result of some metadata analysis or something that proves that your system that you're basing your practice on isn't true. And, but it's been working the whole time. But if your whole practice is based on some idea or some theory, any idea or any theory can at some point be demonstrated to be untrue potentially and right. if we if that person finds out that you know none of what they thought was true was true then suddenly they don't believe in what they're doing anymore there's this right. danger you're we, whenever we base our practice on some idea or some philosophy that's potentially true or not true then it's always has to be guarded. You have to guard yourself from anything right. that proves it's not true. But if you base your practice not on some idea or concept, then new information does nothing but help because your practice isn't based on an idea that you have to you have to protect. And so what I what I find is that people that base their whole practice on an idea or a concept or some system or some theory, they by nature become defensive if anything is suggests that maybe their system isn't true because then if it were undermined, then their belief in their own work 
can be undermined by one piece of information. And so I would like to suggest to all the you know sound therapy interested people listening to keep that in mind that that if we build our practice, of course, learn as many theories and concepts as we want that are helpful, but not to base our, not to justify the beauty, the beautiful results that we achieve based on an idea. Let the actual reality speak for itself. And it's, it's not verbal. It's not words. It's not ideas. It's not concepts. It's when you hit a gong or you blow the didgeridoo, that's not words. It's not ideas. It is itself and it produces results and those results are real and they aren't an idea. And to be careful to not let ideas uh, interfere with the facts so that we don't have to protect ourselves from new information. What if we find out, you know, that say, for example, the certain note doesn't actually correspond to a certain part of our body. That does that won't undermine my practice. It won't, or if I find out that the C note actually resonates with, you know, the DNA related to our lower body, that that won't mess up my practice because no. it, it won't mess up your practice, but it'll mess up some people's practice. Right. And it doesn't have to at all. It's totally unnecessary, but it's the a real danger of getting really attached to systems and ideas and concepts and theories. As useful as they are, they're also not worth betting on. So the, this getting getting back to the the this idea, like you're as a practitioner, you know, I, when I have when I've had clients come up to me, even workshops, private sessions, and they tell me like, you know, that that uh, they they've had this result, and, and anytime they say I did something, the first time I t- the the first as soon as I hear that, I I say no, you did all the work. I didn't do anything. I just blew into a hollow stick. I didn't do anything. <laughs> You did, you did all the work. I created an environment that you found some way to con- connect and, and to be able to heal yourself. But I, I had a really interesting thing happen over the last couple months. So when I started my practice, I had one dig and that dig was out of tune. I tell people this all the time. So like you can have an effective session. And this is why that difference between sound therapy and sound healing What's the difference? There really isn't, except one, one group of like the sound therapy side of me is uh, inside of a belief system that, um, the, that we, we have frequencies inside of us that resonate and, and are in tune. I believe that, those, that, that our, our, our subtle energy system uh, vibrates inside of a chromatic scale I, or, or, or the, 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 all of the notes, like all the black and white keys live inside of us, all sound lives inside of us. And we have, as a, as a species or multiple species on the planet, we gravitate towards things that have a particular uh, harmonious tone to us. Like we gravitate towards things that have a particular sound and a particular feeling. Um, you know, some, some, some things that we can take as absolutes culturally, multiple cultures have the evolved in understanding. Right. The harmonic theories as well as subtle energy system theories. So let's, so we can, we can accept the fact that there are these different belief systems and these different sounds and tones that have convergently evolved together. So when you look at that, so I had, I, uh, 
I didn't realize or didn't know I hadn't been given the, 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 uh, the, the piece of history to understand fully that the application of sound inside of the chakra systems was a later development that didn't necessarily go back to the beige sounds. And it was part of a chakra system that was developed specifically for, for musicians inside of the Ayurvedic traditions. Um, the application of emotions to the energy centers was something that came quite recently within hundreds of years, not thousands, um, as, a, as an application. And so for people, then you'll get a, a purist that'll go, well, see, we need to go back to the fundamentals and it wasn't this and it's not, and it's not real. Well, okay. At the same time, we evolve understanding, you know, the, the, uh, the ability to use an MRI did not happen. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. we, we, we develop, we develop theory, we develop understanding. And that's why when we say it's theory, we can evolve. So I, when, when I found this stuff out, I went, you know, I just altered I, I didn't change my workshops. I didn't change my sessions, but the presentation in which I give the information to people to make their own determination of what they believe in included that information. You know, it went, okay, so we now, like, I now understand that these are more recent things. However, I, I, I believe that we have these vibrations inside of us. This is what I believe with the subtle energy system. And inside of that, it include it can be inclusive of all of these different cultures that in, that that evolved the understanding of a subtle energy system, all of these different cultures that understood and and developed an understanding of music and tonality, why things feel in tune and why things feel out of tune, you know, and they're very very similar. So we can we can be inclusive of these things, and it's when you start becoming a fundamentalist of anything where you run a significant danger of doing serious harm. Yeah, I agree <laughs> i i think this is a perfect time for you to let our listeners know how to contact you about your websites any absolutely anything you want to let them know you're this is your spot cool thanks so so well first off if anybody would like to explore any of the last 15 years of music and meditations that i have out there so you Go on Spotify, Apple Music, anything like that. Uh, everything is up there for, well, if you're part of the, the membership services, obviously you're paying for that, but you can go on Spotify for free and you can have access to my entire library. So if you search Joseph Carringer, Joseph B. Carringer, C-A-R-R-I-N-G-E-R, uh, or Dig Therapy, D-I-D-G-E Therapy, and that's a great place you'll be able to bounce off into some of the other bands and, and stuff that I've been part of, but there's a huge library up there and by all means, use it, share it, enjoy it. Uh, won't cost you anything. For those of you who are still buying stuff, you absolutely can go on iTunes, Amazon, and uh, you can download and purchase and download all of that stuff. And it's, it's there as well. Uh, my website is DigTherapy, D-I-D-G-E Therapy, uh, T-H-E-R-A-P-Y uh, .com. Um, I tour uh, all over the U.S. And when I'm lucky, I get to go outside the country as well. So if you take a look at the calendar page, you can see where I'm at. If you want me to come to your area, uh, shoot an email and we'll be, uh, we'll be happy to try to figure something out. And, um, yeah, I think that kind of covers it for me. <laughs> Fantastic. One thing that I wanted to come back to because it's, it's actually a delight to hear you say it. And it's something I think about a lot and talk about a lot is the placebo. Placebo is generally 
conceived of as a sort of bad word like oh right that's just the placebo oh that's just your mind and spirit healing yourself <laughs> right <laughs> right that's just proof that you can that somebody can heal anything inside of themselves by just believing in it <laughs> yeah, yeah no big deal no that's, big deal <laughs> that's that's not powerful like aspirin that's the most powerful thing we have <laughs> and uh i it was it's a delight to hear you say it because i don't hear many other people say something about this but I've uh, come to believe that in sound therapy and, you know, any kind of uh, these sort of, for lack of a better word, maybe shamanic type of uh, healing practices, Mm -hmm. that, that the placebo is essentially sort of a special case of a greater whole that we're tapping into that the placebo effect is a special case where you know you take a sugar pill and it still works like Prozac or whatever drug they're right. substituting the sugar pill for that that's this very special case of this general effect where your consciousness or your mind or spirit or some other central feature of ourselves that maybe we can't name in any valid way is actually doing the healing and it's in sound therapy it people if you say something like you said you know about it being a placebo effect generally people look at that as sort of a downgrade no it's actually doing cymatic patterns and arranging my water molecules into hexagonal arrays and you know causing my dna strands to unwind or something that that the people seem to think that it being real healing or real therapy and it being placebo are two different things whereas in fact if we can if we're able to tap into whatever power the placebo is rooted from then we found the you know the tree of life or the the fountain right. of youth, and so yeah, I'm, I'm really glad. I just wanted to kind of bring that back up because I think that that's such a crucial topic and something that needs to be addressed a lot more and embraced. We would do well to embrace it. Should have a panel on it. Have yes. we, we get together and do a panel on on placebo and mind body. I think it would be uh, it, 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 we would it'd be well served for uh, the uh, the holistic arts uh, to, uh, to to be able to to see it and embrace it as you're saying as a as a positive and not feel the need to over. It's good to be able to explain, but I it's funny when I explain this stuff to people uh, when I cross into talking about the second way that the digit affects a person going into the energetic, I have no problem saying that, you know, this is going to come up into the world of what some people will call pseudoscience because we have no proof. We have no, so you have, it takes, it takes some belief and faith kind of like the placebo. It's like, it's belief. I believe, you know, and that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing to embrace that and say, you know, there are some things right now that are, that are unexplained and, they may, hopefully we can explain them someday. I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel with that one in the near future. Um, But 
yeah, it is. It is what it is. It's it's uh, it's part of what we do. I, I feel like it's a mystery is projected upon it that's not appropriate. For example, if you believe a tiger is about to bite you, your heart rate races, your adrenaline pumps, and your blood pressure goes up. And obviously, your belief just drastically affected your entire body's processes in measurable ways in, right. in that example. And so it's, it's sort of, yeah, there's a mystery projected on, upon it that's not really necessary. It's your, our belief affects every single thing we do when we're walking. You have to believe there's going to be, uh, the floor is going to be in front of you for the next step or you can't walk. Every, right. every single thing we do is based on belief. Everything. It's so ubiquitous that it's hard for us to see, but it's, the, it's really the central feature of every moment of our existence in every way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I actually know that we have a great deal more to discuss. <laughs> and I've already got a, a lot of ideas popping through my head, but I think this is probably a fantastic place to stop. I would love it if you were a guest on this show again. Um, I would be honored to come on your show anytime you want to have me back. Thank yeah, you so much. This is fun. Uh, yeah. Definitely fun. I've, I've very much enjoyed speaking with you, and I feel like a long-term friendship is resultant. I, I agree. I, I agree that we... Uh, um, We've definitely, it's nice to cross paths uh, again in this, or for the first time in this life, probably <laughs> again in many others. So yeah, I appreciate it. And I appreciated the conversation today. It um, was really enjoyable. And I'm sure that our listeners will agree. Thank you, Joseph Carringer. Is that how I say it? Carringer? Yeah, you got it right. You got awesome. it right. And thank you, Thomas. And once again, thank you for joining us on the Art and Science of Sound Healing. I'm your host, Thomas Orr Anderson. Until next time, be blessed and be well.